Well, good morning, church. Thank you for being here. Those of you who are here in person, we want to welcome you. Those of you who are watching online, and want to welcome you. And uh, I know that I've got some grandkids that are watching right now, and so I'm going to just say I love you guys, and thanks for watching. I, you know, I get the privilege of doing that since I'm up here, and so... Uh, it's, it's great for us to be here both in person and online. In fact, you know, as we look out, our numbers are growing, particularly here in this second service. And so uh, we're trying to keep the, the spacing done fairly well, you know, as best we can. And uh, it's been suggested that if any of you who are here for the second service might be willing to come to the 830 service. Now, I know that that's asking a lot. But if any of you are willing to do that, then it might help us even out those numbers. And this is a great problem to have. So thanks for being here. And uh, if that works out for you, then wonderful. I want to say thank you to the McNeeses for the wonderful welcome. Garrett, thank you for those thoughts. Wow, so powerful and so appropriate for, for right now, making the communion just really fit into the context of where we're studying as well as where we're living right now. And Monty, i got to say, we need to have those songs and, and scriptures every week because I feel awake. I tell you, I think you feel awake too. It's kind of like getting some exercises or something. So thank you, Monty, and thank you kids for helping us. We're in a f series this fall on peacemakers where we're letting God's word stretch us and teach us about what it means to live in this world and be someone who works for peace. And um, the text that we're going to study today is from the book of Romans, and we'll be in Romans 14, verses 1 and 2 and 5. And I've, since this is such a difficult text, I've asked for help. And so I'm glad that Greg is here. And so Greg's going to come up, and we're going to kind of team teach dialogue this morning. And I've asked Greg, if he will, to read this passage for us. If you look on your Bible, it'll be Romans 14, 1, 2, and 5. So, Greg? Great. Good morning, everybody. We'll uh, spend some time in the Word. Romans 14, beginning of verse 1. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One's per, uh, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that these scriptures have been stretching us, but the one today not only stretches us, but it's also a little bit complicated, a little bit difficult. And so we, we look at the context. We see that that Paul kind of changes in his letter to Rome, to the church at Rome. In verse chapter 12, he says, present yourselves as living sacrifices. And then he goes on and on. And we get to 14, where we see that that, that church there is actually being stretched as well. That there are people who don't think alike. Uh, there's two distinct groups. There's quarreling, he says, over disputable matters. And some are, are uh, feeling one way about eating meat to idols. And then he also brings up the other illustration about uh, sacred days. He says some believe that cer uh, certain days are sacred. Others believe that every day is alike. And so 
We study this, and a lot of times when we read about meat that's sacrificed to idols or sacred days, we don't really connect to that because really for the most part, we're not living in that world, and those aren't problems that really grasp us. It doesn't really stretch us. But there are situations, there are uh, areas where we are stretched as we come together and are unified in the body of Christ. And sometimes there are disagreements or there are barriers that even we're not aware of. I remember back many, many years ago when I was working with college students and directing the Aggies for Christ, there was one Sunday that a student came after the services were over and he was concerned and he said, can we have a talk? This is important. Now, this was a student who was, he was a grad student. He wasn't from this, he wasn't from Texas. He was from out of state. He wasn't from our particular fellowship. He actually had found the Aggies for Christ by walking across campus in one of our devotionals. He heard singing, and so he came over, he got connected, and he loved our church. He started going to everything that the Aggies for Christ had to offer, and he started coming to church here every time the doors were open. He absolutely loved our church and would tell me that over and over. And so when he came to me and said, I've got a, a problem I need to talk to you about, I was concerned. And so we set up a, a meeting the next day. He walked into the office, and I was kind of thinking that, that maybe it was a roommate problem or perhaps it was a problem of the heart, a romance problem. But he looked at me and he says, I can't come to church here anymore. I love your church, but I can't come here anymore. Well, it was a matter of the heart. It was a breakup, but it wasn't a breakup with him and his girlfriend. It was a breakup that he was having with us. And so I said, well, what's the issue? What, what, why, why are you saying that? And he said, well, I grew up in my church, in my fellowship, I grew up an iconoclast. I have to be honest with you, I had no idea what he was saying. But I, you know, decided to try to play like I knew. And so I said, well, could you talk to me more about that? And uh, so he began to describe that he grew up in a fellowship that intentionally did not have any symbols or icons in their building or in their, on their jewelry. And he said, I walked in here. I'd been going to church here for a long time, and I loved your, your building because, because uh, there were no crosses, but I walked in, and I looked up here, and on our wall was a cross. And I, you know, I thought, yes, I love it. It's great. I love the cross. But he had this look of despair. He was unable, because of his conscience, to be able to assemble with us anymore because there was a cross hanging on our wall. It offended him. Now, Greg, I'm going to give this problem to you. Thanks for being up here. Is it wrong for us to have a cross on our wall? Well, when Kelly met with this young man, I think, he, how many scriptures did you say he brought? Oh, he brought about a hundred About a hundred scriptures to prove his point. So what I would like to do is work through each one of those verse by verse this morning. If we could just take a little. 
Okay, I guess maybe you don't want to do that. So let's try another, let's try another approach. Is it wrong for us to have a cross on our wall? Well, I would say if we were bowing down and worshiping this cross, and I believe that is the intention uh, in the Ten Commandments, you know, in uh, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 4, the second of the Ten Commandments, when God says, don't make any graven images, you know, or bow down and worship, uh, worship those graven images. But that's not the purpose of the cross on our wall. If we could boil it down to its essence, I think the purpose of the cross on this wall behind us is to remind us of who we are and whose we are. Um, and um, the idea of daily taking up our cross, uh, laying our burdens down before the cross. I mean, there's so many different things that we could talk about. What's fascinating to me, too, is that throughout Scripture, God uses all different types of images primarily as reminders of God's power and of God's provision. So we think about the 12 stones, you know, that were set up as the children of Israel crossed over the uh, Jordan. We talk about the, the, um, the pieces that were put into the Ark of the Covenant, the staff of uh, Aaron um, and, and the Ten Commandments. Um, and um, there was a, a pot of, oh, what was it? Help me out here. What, what? Manta, manna, thank you, the pot of manna that was also in the, in the Ark of the Covenant. And then, um, you know, we roll the clock forward into the New Testament even, and we see Jesus using all different types of geographic references and names and images and ultimately giving us the bread and giving us the cup to remember him uh, by. So, so having a cross uh, on a wall doesn't mean that we worship a cross. It just reminds us of who we are and whose we are. Yeah. Well, as we get into this text, if you're going to study, because it's a, different, a difficult text, you have to look at the context. You have to look at the, the word uh, as it was written in the original language. And so the first phrase that Paul really uses that we're going to look at is the word, phrase disputable matters. Now, looking at the Greek of this particular word here, you might recognize a word that takes its root from this Greek word. Can you recognize what it is, our English word? What is it? Dialogue. That's right. So disputable matters in Greek is, is uh, rooted in this idea of dialogue. Now, sometimes you can have dialogue with yourself in your mind. And many times in Scripture, it, this word is used as people uh, thought processed information before they made a decision. But this word is also used when two people have different ways of thinking and they begin to share their particular way of thinking with the other. And so uh, this is a, a, a dialogue that takes place over the disputable matters. Now, it seems to me, and this is an observation that I make, that since Paul talks about disputable matters, then there must be, by definition, matters that are not disputable. And so there are, uh, there's a distinction made here between disputable matters and other matters. Now, Paul will, off, uh, will sometimes talk about matters of importance and Particularly, he goes to 1 Corinthians 15. If you turn there, verse 3, where he says, I want to tell you, I want to tell you about matters of first importance. And in these, in these matters, we have solid agreement. In disputable matters, you'll find people, godly people, people who are respected, people who love Scripture, but they might 
have difference in in way that they let that scripture bring meaning into their life. So what else do we see, Greg, as well, far as this? I think you just hit on something there that's really important, Kelly, and that is that as we look at these two different perspectives, and I don't really want to use the word opinions because it's, it's stronger than that. That word doesn't really do justice. But as we look at these perspectives, one of the things that we see is that both perspectives are rooted in Scripture. It's based on their understanding. Uh, how do we relate to God? How do we worship Him? How are we obedient to Him? So the former AFC that you mentioned, he couldn't in, in good uh, conscience worship with a cross, you know, in his, in his um, view. And so in his mind, it, it violated Scripture, right? Um, and then, then we have two examples that Paul gives here where the exact same thing is happening. And these are not exhaustive examples. He's just using these as consider these things. There are many other things that could have been in play as well. But specifically, he talks about the eating of meat that is sacrificed to idols, and he talks about the honoring of special days, one day more special than another. And both of these have uh, strong scriptural backing on both sides of the conversation. Paul is not talking about opinions. Again, that, that word is not strong enough. He's, he's not addressing that which is absolute in the eyes of God. So stealing is a sin. It's always a sin. Yeah. Gossiping can't be justified anywhere in Scripture. The same is true for lying. The same is true for sexual sin. The list goes on and on and on. And so even though Paul is not dealing here with sin, both perspectives do go to Scripture, at least they can go to Scripture, to plead their case. And, and, and both examples Paul mentions here are rooted in people's understanding of Scripture. So let's just do a quick overview, and then we'll come back and do a deeper dive here in just a second. But the first is food that is offered to idols. So the Old Testament had much to say about food and the use of food and the types of food that were acceptable to God and the types of food that were not, those foods that could um, be eaten without any hesitation, those foods that could actually defile you if you consume them. So eating those unacceptable foods, that was, that was just not even comprehensible by, by Jewish believers. And it's not just a problem in Rome. We also can notice that in uh, Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, which, by the way, if you'll start in about chapter 8 and really all the way through to the end of, of 1 Corinthians, but if you'll start there, you'll see that that's a macro version of what Paul is talking about in a very located text here. So for a much fuller understanding of what Paul is talking about in Romans 14, later in your own study, look at 1 Corinthians 8 and go all the way through uh, really to the end of the book. The second thing that we're dealing with here refers to holy days. Remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. Now, Paul may not specifically be talking about the Sabbath. He could be talking about any number of holy days here, but we'll choose the Sabbath because that's low-hanging fruit for us. Even we, as modern believers, understand the concept of Sabbath and the idea of the day of Sabbath. But in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8, this is actually um, the, the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments. And so the Jews uh, are going to take this very, very uh, seriously. And, and about the only example I could think of of how much this could have ruffled their feathers, and I, I really was trying to rack my brain on this, what's something that we could relate to. The only thing I could think of is it would be like on a Sunday morning, if you showed up here and, and someone got up to share communion thoughts, and they said, now, traditionally, we, uh, we take grape juice to remind us of the blood of Christ. And today, we're also going to offer a really nice red, a good Merlot uh, that hopefully you will enjoy. 
Now, even by me saying that, did anybody in the room just go get a little bit nervous, okay? When you're thinking about using actual alcohol in, in, that, in that Lord's Supper. Well, that's, I think, what the Jews would have experienced. They're, I'm sorry, you're, you're going to do what? You're, you're asking me to, to not make a big deal out of, can you say that again? And so there's a tremendous amount of tension that's in play here as these believers who are one in Christ find themselves at odds over these perspectives. Um, and so we see this, uh, this is very important to the Jews. A lot of Gentile believers, they may have actually seen this as a wise concept. They may have actually even observed the Sabbath. But to them, it was not an issue of salvation. So we think about these two perspectives here. Perspective number one, special days matter. So for the believers who had kept this commandment all their lives, it would have been very difficult for them to just stop keeping the commandment. Their conscience would not allow it. It was really hard for them to worship with those who were not observing Sabbath or special days. Perspective number two, special days don't matter. Um, to those who had never kept the Sabbath, to honor one day as more holy than another, to say one day is more sacred than another, well, that was really difficult for them. These believers lived in the freedom that they found in Jesus, who on the cross, as we think about from Ephesians chapter 2 uh, last week, from Kelly's observations in Ephesians 2 verse 15, Jesus set aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. And so to insist that a new believer keep the dietary restrictions in observance of sacred days before they could be considered as part of God's family, that was, that was seen as really placing a heavy burden on these new believers. As a matter of fact, there was a council that was called. There's this wonderful record of how the church came to agreement in Acts chapter 15 over very similar matters. And Kelly's going to actually say more about that next Sunday. So we have different points of view. We have different backgrounds. We have different emphases. When you put all of these together, well, we come to different perspectives, um, both from an appeal to Scripture. So while we work through any disputable matter, and church, you need to hear this, there will always be disputable matters, mm -hmm. always, because we are human beings. And there's going to be this collection of perspectives that God's going to bring together as we're going to see ultimately for his glory, but we're still going to struggle with that. I heard one individual speaking about this text. He said, the favorite indoor sport of Christians is arguing with each other. Okay, that's our favorite indoor sport. Um, well, we don't want it to be that way. We have got to treat one another with dignity and respect. And I would say even above that, when we're dealing with a disputable matter, we have got to treat the text with ultimate dignity and respect. Yeah, so these two perspectives that we have here and, and Paul is talking about here in his letter to the church at Rome, he could have called one group us because he landed as part of that group and the other one them. He could have called one group right and the other one wrong. He could have called one liberal, the other conservative, but he didn't. He chose two words which are very interesting. And he chooses the word strong and weak. 
when he begins talking about these two particular groups. Now, I've spent my lifetime trying to figure out what this means and why Paul chose these two words, strong and weak. To be honest, most of us, if I were to guess, would love to be classified as the strong. I, I don't want to be identified as the weak. I would like to be part of the strong group. And, and yet sometimes a, a surface understanding of strong and weak can lead us into a misunderstanding. Sometimes you hear someone uh, refer to strong and weak and, and they look back to uh, chapter 14, verse 15, if you skip down there, where Paul says, do not, he's speaking to the strong, he says, do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. And so they say, well, all right, I want to be the strong brother unless my point of view is being threatened. And at that point, I want to claim being the weak brother because I know then the strong brother is going to have to give in and not oppose their view on me. I call that the, the weaker Christian clause. And that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about that at all. So what is he talking about when he refers to these two particular groups as a strong group and a weak group? Years ago, when I was a missionary in Thailand, I worked with college students. And I can remember distinctly one day as one of our students came in and she was so excited because she had just been accepted to do her master's degree in the United States. And I said, that's wonderful. Where are you going to go study? And she said, I'm going to be at the University of Wisconsin. Well, you have to know that Thailand is a tropical country. If it gets below 70 degrees, they think it's really winter. If it gets below 65, it's a national emergency, and they start passing out blankets on the street. And she is going to Wisconsin. And so I said, do you know what you're getting yourself into? Are you prepared? Well, of course, she had no idea of how to prepare herself for a winter in Wisconsin, having come from Thailand. Well, she left, she went, she came back at the end of the year, she was in town, she stopped by the office, and I was so glad to see her, and I said, wow, tell me, how was your time in, in Wisconsin? And so she began talking about it, and then she remembered our earlier conversation about how cold it was, and she paused, and she looked at me, and her eyes got really big, and she said, Kelly, you'll love this. I walked on water. And we had a laugh over that. And so I said, well, tell me about it. Well, and she began to say, I was so afraid. She said, the, the ponds there near where she lived, they, they froze over. And she said, my friends wanted me to go out there on, on, the, on the ice. And I didn't want to. I didn't trust it. But they would go out there and they'd jump on it. She said, some of them even drove their cars on it. So she said she finally got up enough courage to go and she's put one foot out on the ice and then she, she was holding onto a tree branch that was there and she put the other foot out on the ice and she showed me the picture and she had two feet on the ice, her hand holding onto the branch and her face scared to death. 
At that time, I was teaching the book of Romans, and it dawned on me, this is a perfect example. Because of her background, because of her experiences, for her to put her full weight and trust on the ice, on the the frozen pond, was something that was totally foreign to her, and it scared her to death. For her friends that had grown up in Wisconsin and had seen this over and over, they thought nothing of going out onto the ice, of jumping on the ice, of even driving their car on the ice. And so what we're seeing here is that when Paul talks about the weak brother, when he talks about the strong sister, he's saying there are some of you that because of your background, you're going to approach this scripture with a little bit of a different priority. It may be that putting your total weight on the grace of God through the cross is difficult. And so it may be that you'll be standing on that grace of God, standing on there, but you're still holding on to the tree because it makes you feel safe. It makes you feel like you uh, are doing what you need to do. And so the strong and the weak, this is what Paul talks about here in this passage. So, Greg, help us understand how this fits in, in practical application there. Well, first of all, I think that was an incredible analogy. It just helps me really understand what the, the Jewish and the Gentile believers are facing here. And just a couple of things. Strong and weak are not value judgments. That's not what Paul is saying. It's not greater than, less than. It's not right and wrong, as Kelly mentioned a few moments ago. And I think it's really important to keep that in mind. A couple of things that we see here, though, we just to, to look, see what this looks like lived out behaviorally in this particular time in this context, and then what lessons can we draw from it in uh, 2020 and beyond. First of all, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, uh, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Now, you're going to find this really interesting. This verse about disputable matters is actually disputed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Imagine that. Imagine that. Because scholars don't exactly know what this means. As a matter of fact, I think I found six different perspectives, six different perspectives, and that's not an exhaustive list of what he could be talking about here, okay? Uh, particularly as it relates to this idea of, of, of eating uh, vegetables. Um, it seems to be, at least in my mind, the, the strongest possibility is that, that weak here are mainly Jewish Christians who refuse to eat certain kinds of food and observed certain days out of continuing loyalty to the law of Moses. Okay, that's what it seems like is going on here. It could be that they're just strict vegetarians. That's very, very possible. But it seems to me to be more likely that they're, just, they're doing anything and everything they can to even avoid the hint of eating food that might have been sacrificed to uh, idols. And this would have been particularly important because at this, at this time, generally, the Lord's Supper was often shared within the context of what was called a love feast, okay? So it was part of a greater meal. So at the risk of contaminating or being contaminated, they would just avoid eating meat altogether. Some of the strong brothers and sisters may have actually been bringing dishes with meat that had been sacrificed to idols, and there were opportunities to purchase this meat um, and and to to eat it, uh, eat Eating meat sacrificed to an idol, of course, is forbidden by Old Testament law. And so because of this, you set this dish down in front of a Jewish believer, and the Jewish believer is saying, well, I can't eat that. 
And not only can I not eat that, I can't be in fellowship with you if you do eat it. And so being in this situation where others are, are eating a dish that violates Scripture, those who are opposed are separating themselves from their fellowship meal. They're getting over into their own corner. They're eating vegetable. And I want you to notice, by the way, that in Galatians chapter 2, Paul chastises Peter for very similar behavior. As Peter leaves the Gentile table and goes over and hangs out with the Jews, even the apostles of Jesus struggle with understanding disputable matters. So this would have been very offensive, potentially very, very upsetting to those who had always considered eating meat um, a participation in idolatry. The law of Moses uh, clearly stated that you know, various dietary restrictions are in play, and so Paul here seems to be referring to these individuals as the weaker brother. The one who is weak here in this context is looking for a very specific command to find clarity to find comfort. I love the analogy of holding on to the, to the branch on the shoreline. Knowing that this is a clearly marked boundary and observing this clearly marked boundary, that that's what pleases God because they know that God demands obedience. And so they enjoyed the security of following a command. But there are also those here who Paul refers to as the strong. They look at the wider scope of Scripture they look at the wider teachings, the wider examples of Jesus, and they find great peace and great comfort in the freedom that they have received from the reconciling work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus says there is no food that you can put into your mouth that makes you unclean, and they cling to that truth. They cling to that promise. Example number two, one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike, Romans 14 and verse 5. So the weak here, as I think Paul is teaching, uh, the law of Moses, that Scripture for these Jewish believers states, we must honor the Sabbath by keeping it holy. Therefore, it is obviously wrong to not strictly keep the Sabbath. I remember attending a Jewish Orthodox worship assembly one Sunday, and I remember putting the Hebrew Bible in the, the, the pew holder, and I put it in like we put our books. But Hebrews read right to left. And the gentleman who was sitting beside me promptly reached over, picked the book up, turned it around, and slid it back into the pew the right way because following the rules is very very important to Orthodox Jewish believers. The strong, Jesus said that Sabbath is made for the man, not man for the Sabbath. So Jesus helps us see the fuller meaning of the Sabbath command, and even Jesus himself broke Sabbath protocol for a higher purpose. And I think this is really, really important. And this is where we get to the place where this is not about right or, or about wrong. It's really a, a right versus right dilemma in many ways. But what's important to note here is Paul chastises both groups, the weak and the strong, because they're using their understanding to divide the body of Christ. Oh, yes. And that, that's so important. So as we look at this passage, one of the first observations that I have is actually how we approach Scripture, and this is something that's important. Next to, my, the, next to this verse in my Bible, I've written, think darts more than bowling. Mm. And here's what I mean by that. In bowling, you go to the alley, and you've got 10 pins set up there, and you get the ball, you bring it back, and you roll it down the alley, and your goal is to what? 
knock down all ten. You can get nine of them knocked down, and there's that one left over, and you're like, oh. You feel like you failed. Darts, however, is different. With darts, there is this center part, this red part. We call it the bullseye. And you take the dart, and your goal is to throw the dart and get it as close to the center as you can. Now, every place on the board has has a value, but the greater value is found with those that are closest to the center. Every place is, every pin is important, and you want to knock down all the pins, but in, in darts, every place on the board is important, but you value those darts that are closest to the bullseye. And I think this is how we, we look at Scripture in a, in a very good and healthy way. Jesus himself was asked one time, do you remember? He was approached, he said, Lord, Rabbi, which is the greatest commandment? Now, what does Jesus not say? He doesn't say, well, you know, really, all commandments are equal. You need to knock them all down. Hmm. Jesus doesn't say that. He says, Without pause, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then he emphasizes, he says, this is the first and the greatest commandment. And he doesn't even stop there. He said, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul in the scripture we referred to a few moments ago in Romans, I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians 15, he starts off that chapter talking about the gospel. He says, do you remember when I first came? Do you remember, do you remember the gospel message that I left you when I first was there? And then he reminds them. And he says, I want to remind you of these matters of first importance. And then he begins to list the identity of Christ and who he was, the fact that Christ died on the cross, the fact that Christ was buried and that he was resurrected from the tomb, the fact that that the resurrected Jesus appeared to over and over and over. He lists all these, these appearances that he made. These are matters that Paul considered as first of first importance and so Paul's saying here in disputable matters I want you to accept one another without quarreling I want you to love one another I want you to honor each other he seems it seems that Paul rather than insisting that everybody believe alike on what Paul thought was right, he's saying it's more important for you to show love to each other and honoring each other in these disputable matters. Paul could have said what was right or what was wrong. And later on in in verse 14, he says, let me tell you, I know that it's okay to eat anything. He could have insisted that everybody believe like him, but he doesn't. So here's the implication on that that we can be right in our belief, but we can still bring dishonor to Christ by the way that we treat each other, the way that we love each other, the way that we show honor to each other. And this was more important to Paul than insisting that everybody believe just like him in disputable matters. Greg, what else do we have? Well, I just think, if you think about what's happened the past couple of weeks, the text that we've been in, and um, what Kelly has shared, you know, God's plan has always been 
for all nations, all tongues, all peoples, all tribes. Uh, he used Israel from the very beginning, but Israel was used to get that ball rolling. Mm. You know, it was never about one exclusive group. Uh, it was always with an eye toward uh, the world and the world reconciled in Christ Jesus. Um, in the church, you think about brought about by the reconciling power of the, the cross, Jesus, Jesus Christ, the manifold wisdom of God is actually revealed to us in such a clear and powerful way. Um, the church is intended mm. to be a melting pot of vastly different people who come together. We're, we're coming together as a counterculture. We don't right. use metrics of the world to uh, identify success, but, but we're participating in it's a supernatural right. kind of love because this is through the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, and that's not what the world typically experiences um, in Paul's point of view, our differences in disputable matters do not divide us. Right. Disputable matters do not divide us. Um, our differences serve to display the unifying power of the cross of Jesus Christ. And what do you know? We just happen to have one of those on a wall back here mm -hmm. to remind us of what's most important. Yeah, and next week, I hope you'll come back and be part of our talk next week. We're going to go ahead and, and study Romans 14 and on into 15 and see what Paul leaves as a template for a church, a, a diverse church, a church that, that doesn't agree with each other. But before I let you go today, I want to tell you the end of the story that I started with. That day in my office with the AFCer, we... We decided to pray about it and study for two weeks and then get back together again. And so both of us agreed and we committed to that. The two-week time wasn't reached. It was the next week. I noticed him here in our assembly. And so he noticed that I noticed. And so after church, we met each other and he said, Kelly, I figured it out. And I'm trying to think, well, what did he figure out? He said, I figured out that if I sit right over there in the corner, I can't even see the cross. <laughs> what a great solution. And for the rest of his time here, you could find him over there in the corner, and he would be worshiping God with all of his heart. The thing that I take from that is that both of us were committed to unity. Both of us were committed to the relationship. Both of us wanted to do whatever we could to make sure that we could walk together, we could worship together as brothers. You may have heard this phrase. You may not have known where, who wrote it or whatever. And the research that I did, it was from 1627. It was written in a time that Europe was divided in, by countries and churches. It was time of polarization and chaos. And this phrase became the watchword for churches back then. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. If we were to put that phrase in the language of our text today, I think that this is what we would say. In matters of first importance, 
unity. In disputable matters, liberty. In all things, love. Because Jesus says, by this all are going to know that you are my disciples by the way that you love each other.